Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, as we gradually wind down our study, and First and Second Peter, today even, connecting the dots between the text and, again, giving some consideration to what Peter is addressing and why he's addressing it, and then wrestling with the, uh, the challenge for sure, that this text presents to us this morning. Aren't you thankful that in a world that is changing so rapidly, in a culture that has lost its moorings in a church that seems to be wrestling with what's true and not true for those who are, who are known by our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, He will hold us fast. Are you thankful for that? And yet at the same time, We find ourselves from time to time with our souls crying out, what is going on, Lord? How how long before you put an end to this madness? And madness abounds. I'm struck by this wrestling match taking place in our culture today with the political and educational cultural elites laying claim to our children. And I call upon you to stand your ground. Children are heritage to the Lord. They are the responsibilities of mom and dad. We must cling to the importance of the family. We must raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we, ne- we shall never, ever turn our children over to these elites, but do what is right in God's eyes, believing no matter how difficult that might be, He will hold us fast. My soul cries out for this next generation. My soul cries out for this wrestling match, and my soul cries out for the church. Father, find us faithful, faithful to the book, faithful to the truth, faithful in our lives, faithful in our behavior, and faithful in our choices. With a clear understanding that every choice you make in life has consequences. This morning, in Second Peter chapter 2, we will talk about the consequence of choice, the consequence of deciding, pledging your allegiance, yielding to one thing or another. Whether we like it or not, every decision that we make has consequences. Oftentimes, every Every day brings a a new choice. Paul reminds us to make a choice today to yield our members as righteousness unto God. But within the context of those choices, there are those who make wrong choices, and the consequences for that are dire. They are serious, and that is what Peter begins to delve into in this text. But I want you to know that this text also addresses the matter of choice and consequence for God's people. And every day we have a choice to live out this day and to live out our lives with the hope that we have in Christ according to the principles of His Word, guiding us in our decisions, knowing that every decision that we make, every choice that is presented to us bears consequence. Well, Peter, in his first epistle, was writing to a group of believers who had started to experience persecution consequences, if you would, for their choice 
to live soberly and righteous in this present age. I believe we're probably living in a similar time today. And although persecution isn't as real and palpable as perhaps it was to those who Peter was writing to, I believe that it is rapidly approaching that stage in which there will be consequences to the choices that we make and the truths that we hold, and we must never compromise, regardless of whatever those consequences might be. So in his first epistle, he writes to the believers, encouraging them, encouraging them that even in the midst of their suffering, God is faithful, and He will take care of them, and He will watch over them, and in essence, they win in the end. But sometimes, day by day by day, it appears that we're not winning, and you're not winning, and they weren't winning. Peter spends a lot of time talking to them about this comfort that comes from the Scriptures and from the church and from the institutions of the world, in essence, from the sovereignty of God. Peter, perhaps in a, in a weak paraphrase, says, don't, don't you think he knows what's going on? Don't you think he understands? Don't you think he has everything under control? And indeed, he does. So we're called together in a place like this and preach the Word to herald and champion that truth and to encourage the believers even in the consequence of choice. But interesting, as Peter moves from his first epistle offering comfort to a church tied up with persecution, he moves to 2 Peter offering confrontation and warning. The confrontation and warning that he offers is of eternal nature, and yet I think there's some day-to-day application of the things that he speaks of. One of the things that Peter sets his mind to do in Second Peter is to confront twisted versions of Christian truth. We will find in this text by way of example the ultimate reality reserved for those who reject God and true truth, the eternal consequences of their choice. And yet at the same time, He will warn us that even inside of the church there are false teachers who have crept in who are now twisting the truth. He will teach us in this text that they are among us. They're sitting down to meals with us. They are they're intermingling with us, and there's a grave need for God's people to be able to, to sort out what is true from what is twisted, to know, as Francis Schaeffer said, true truth, and not be caught up in this deconstruction, reconstruction, or recapitulation of the truth that somehow upends morality as we know it and makes room for things that we should never make room for in the body of believers. There are consequences when we make room for the sensual, when we make room for those things of our culture that are directly in opposition to the teachings of the truth, and we convince ourselves that if somehow we can make friends, if somehow we can soften the truth, if somehow we can make our churches appealing to those living in darkness, they will come to the truth. That's fool's gold. It doesn't, doesn't happen that way. The only time darkness is dispelled in their life is through the faithful preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who opens their eyes that they can see. But how will their eyes be open 
There is no preaching and teaching. That's how he ends his first epistle, and now he brings confrontation to this twisted truth, and he brings a warning to God's people in the beginning of 2 Peter, found in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this reason, and here is his, his warning, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and to virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. He is saying that truth matters, and you must be growing in that knowledge of truth, or you will be swept away by these false teachers and teachings. We must be prepared. And then, of course, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, he outlines the preparation and the prophet of Scripture. This more sure prophetic word that God's people will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. They don't like the Word. They don't like its truth. They don't like those who proclaim it. You'll make no mistake, it is the Word that shines as a bright light in a dark place, no matter how dark that place is. And we proclaim that truth until we see Him and become like Him, for that truth came from God as He concludes chapter 1. For us, when we weigh consequences, we must know the difference between truth and error, twisted truth and true truth. We must be discerning, and discernment begins by an appropriate understanding of the Scripture. And as we've said before in Spurgeon's quote, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's the battle in the church today. And that's what Peter is trying to to warn the congregation of. He's trying to point out these false teachers, their subtle philosophies, their deceitful philosophies that, that are drawing them away from true truth into twisted truth, clouding their discernment of judgment between right and almost right. And then he talks about the nature of those false teachers beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Follow with me, please. But false prophets also arose among the people. And just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the worlds of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going on to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds and what he saw and heard. If all of that is true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep them to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. It describes them as bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, through though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, and they have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. And they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Father, a difficult and challenging text indeed that lays out the fate of the unrighteous and the consequence of choice, eternal things and and eternal matters, giving clear instruction and illustration of the faithfulness of God in blessing holding us fast, the faithfulness of God in judgment, holding all men accountable to the consequence of choice. We reflect upon this truth, and as we delve in it this morning, I pray that in many ways you would open our eyes and our understanding you bring clarity to the gospel and compassion to our souls for those destined to darkness, destruction, and judgment. May you bring great encouragement as you remind us that in each negative example, 
your grace was sufficient, brought blessing, promise, and hope. As you study this text, our eyes to see, hearts and minds to understand, and unite a passion in us for those who are dead in trespass and sin. If you'd be so kind as we preach the gospel, may you use us as an instrument of someone, perhaps many someone's coming to know you, through true truth, as you find us faithful. That's our prayer. Encourage us as we study the text. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Peter begins in this chapter with terms of condemnation and destruction. These are not trivial terms. Condemnation is eternal in nature, and destruction is not annihilation, but eternal consequence for sin. He likens or ties these condemnations and destructions to the false prophets who rose among the people. He's speaking of those who are threatening the churches that Peter is writing to. They had come into those churches, they were polluting and diluting the truth. And what Peter does in verse 4 and onward through the text is talk about the severe judgment of God that will fall upon those who prey upon the people, those who reject the ultimate authority and truth of God, those who deny His sovereignty, and in very bleak terms, he describes the eternal realities that they face. Verse 4, he says, about these false prophets and teachers and their condemnation that is not idle. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves that God's not paying very close attention to what's happening on our world. How come He's not doing something? He knows the end from the beginning. He always does right in His own eyes, and within time and space, this judgment of the false teachers is a done deal. Where we might cry for vengeance today, we must trust in God's sovereignty for all of our tomorrows, knowing that He will set the record straight and provide the separation of the wicked and the righteous. Peter gives some illustrations of that coming day of destruction. God is not asleep. He knows what's happening. He will do something about this, and he explains it by giving three particular illustrations in the text. He says to these people, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment, his first illustration… He's talking about fallen angels and the ultimate judgment that will come upon them. And we would include in this text that God provides no form of salvation for those fallen angels. In fact, two-thirds of them are bound until that final judgment. And yet we read in the Scripture that a third that follows Satan in his rebellion wreak havoc, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. We, we know that well. We have a challenge in this text of differentiating between those who fell with Satan and these other angels who were bound for eternity, but the text isn't to create some curiosity where we could figure out what their sin was. Peter is writing 
about the wage of sin. And he's simply telling us, for whatever reason they fell, the consequence was eternal. And he describes that eternal consequence of these fallen angels who had sinned against him, that he committed them to chains. They were cast into the abode of the wicked. They were some of the worst offenders of all. Wicked spirits bound, awaiting judgment in gloomy darkness, kept until the judgments. It's not that their sentence is unsure. Their sentence is real. They are waiting sentence, the torment that that must have brought to these fallen angels, just waiting until this point in time in history where they would stand before this great white throne judgment and ultimately be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, vindicates this reality that God will take care of His people, yet judgment is coming upon those who reject His authority. It's a scary picture, this gloomy darkness and this impending judgment, but make no mistake, the judgment is sure, and it is coming, and a holy and righteous God will mete out judgments. A second illustration in verse 5, if He did not spare the ancient world, that world at the time of, of Noah, if He did not spare that ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, He now gives this, this ultimate reality of condemnation and judgment towards those who existed before the great flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 6, where we're taught that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually, reading from Genesis 6 verses 5 and onward. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. The ultimate pronouncement of judgment following in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We know from that passage of Scripture and that text that God sends a great flood upon the face of the earth. The false teachers scoffed at that. The deconstructionists scoff at that today. The progressives say there's no way this was a worldwide flood. You can't trust God. This isn't going to happen. The same scoffers that said, you don't have to worry about God. He says judgment is coming. Well, where's this judgment? Do whatever you want in your own eyes. You don't have to worry about it. And Peter says, yes, you do. Just like those in Noah's time, they had to worry about it. And God brought utter destruction upon the face of the earth, but preserved Noah. And even in the midst of this eternal judgment and picture of God's, God's judgment by flood and God's judgment by chain for the angels and then that ancient world, there's hope to the believer that God preserved Noah because he was a herald of righteousness. He didn't preserve Noah for good works. Noah received faith by belief. That's always been that way from Genesis 
through the book of Revelation. Just like Abraham, his faith was counted as righteousness, but it does teach us that true faith has real-life consequences, and the true faith of Noah set him apart and separate from the rest of the world, and for years upon years, he declared righteousness, offered warning of divine judgment, at the same time constructing an ark. It's a picture of God's salvation in the midst of this terrible, terrible destruction. And the destruction came upon the world of the ungodly. As we reflect upon that destruction, can you imagine the number of souls wiped off the face of the earth, yet ushered immediately into their condemnation and awaiting judgment? I'll say this a couple of times. As God's people, we get caught up sometimes and cheering for the good guys, and rooting against the bad guys. But we were all bad guys at one point in time, save the grace of God. I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis, you have never met a mere mortal, and in this time of the flood, thousands upon thousands upon thousands were ushered, ushered into their eternal weight the eventual judgment that would come upon them for the ungodly. Acts and behaviors in that ancient world. If your tendency is to cheer this on, yeah, go get him, God. You, you've misunderstood the point entirely. He's simply saying there's consequence of choice. And there's the right choice and there's the wrong choice, but choices always have consequences. For you who are righteous, you will be delivered. For those who aren't, they will be condemned. The question remains, well, so what are we going to do about that? gives a third example in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He talks about those historic cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and that plain of, of Jordan, this fertile land that were destroyed by their wickedness or because of their wickedness by this fire and brimstone and sulfur who obliterated them to such an extent that archaeologists can't even find any remnants of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were ex- Extinguished, extinction, as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Total destruction, incineration, and asphyxiation, no escape from that wicked city for their wickedness. But in verse 7, Peter offers some hope. At the same time, he rescued righteous Lot. That is an interesting statement. Did you ever study this righteous Lot? <laughs> he pitched his tent toward Sodom and Gomorrah. He was attracted to their evil. He resided in the city. Even after the condemnation upon that city, the Bible tells us that he was guilty of drunkenness and incest. How in the world can you say he was a righteous man? This is really important. Really important. 
Righteousness is not based on our good works and what we do and don't do. It is based on our faith in the God who will do it for His glory. The patience and long-suffering of God in this text towards Lot is perhaps a timely encouragement to all of us. When we are His, we are His for eternity, and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. And this righteous Lot made a lot of bad decisions in his life, but by faith, he was righteous. And God spared him. He rescued him from the city. Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He, he knew better. He knew right from wrong. His eyes were open, and although he was in that city and prayed to the constant pressure of the lasciviousness and, and, and sexual idolatries of, of, of those cities, because his soul was rescued through faith, it was troublesome to him, maybe not troublesome enough to get him out of that city, without trying to make too big a deal on that, I sense there's Christians today living in the midst of that lawlessness and trouble, but not so much that they move out and they separate and they take a stand. All of this judgment and the sparing of this righteous man was based on the lawless deeds and actions of those in the city. In verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Based on these examples here, God spared Noah and his wife, his three sons and their daughters. God spared Lot. And God will rescue us, the godly, from trials. Yet he will keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. There are consequences to choice. In this context, Peter is laying out an argument of the eternal consequences of choice. And just like so many in our culture today, we would like to look at this text and see the flood of Noah or the fall of the angels or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as some kind of symbolism or metaphor didn't really happen. And Peter says, it happened. Jesus Himself in the Gospels talks about, it happened. It is real. There's a consequence of choice. And just like today, we minimize the Gospel and the choices of the gospel, and we see good people seeking after God when the Bible says there's none that understands and none that seeketh after God. As we wrestle with the consequence of choice in this picture that is played out for us on the, the judgment on the ungodly, we're reminded that God will always rescue His own from trials, yet the unrighteous are always awaiting their punishment at the day of judgment. That day of judgment is that great white throne judgment recorded for us in Revelation chapter 20. 
when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, and all of those unrighteous once reserved for judgment come to their ultimate judgment and are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That shouldn't create a pause in the body, but a shudder. The souls are ushered into eternity and a lifetime of separation from God and eternal punishments. That's why it's so important that we stay true to the Word and true to the gospel and true to telling the truth to a world that doesn't want to embrace or understand the truth. And why judgment will come, verse 10, especially to those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority especially to those sexually corrupt, especially those who reject the lordship of Christ, especially those who say and creep into the church saying, you can do whatever you want. There is no judgment. You can do whatever you want. Whatever it is that that makes you happy is okay. That is a danger and a peril in the church and in the culture, and the consequences of choice are real and blatantly laid out for us in this text. In the second portion of verse 10, he said, these false teachers, and now switches from the historic narrative and these illustrations that he gives to those who are present among them, bringing in heresy that is destructive in nature. He describes them as being bold and willful, self-willed and arrogant, daring and reckless. I am reminded often in what I hear today in this moral upheaval of our culture, a phrase that stuck with me from the truth project that we did a long time ago back at the old building, enticing people to live their best life now. Can you hear the hiss of the snake? It is Genesis chapter 3. You can do whatever you want. In fact, you can be God yourself. There are no consequences, and Peter is desperately trying to say there is consequences, and there will be these bold, willful people who will pervert the truth for selfish gain, and they are so perverted in the truth they don't even tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They have no fear of retribution. They shake their fist at God with no fear. Why? Why is that? We could go back to Romans chapter 1, and the things of God that are clearly seen through all of creation so that no man is without excuse. And those who fell into this willful perversion and this pursuit of of, of sexual lasciviousness, antinomianism, I I can do whatever I want to do. The Bible says that God gave them over to their reprobate minds to do the things that they shouldn't have done. In a sense, uh, that, that judgment has already come upon them. And because that judgment is all, always all, also or already settled upon them, uh, they don't tremble at, at chafing at the authority of God and His sovereignty and the principles of His Word. In fact, they seem to revel in that, chilling how much this resembles many leaders today. Chilling. So much so they even blaspheme the glorious ones. They slander and speak profane lies even about sacred things. 
sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of personal responsibility. The text says they're bold and willful. Yet at the same time, we are reminded that there's a difference in them and us. Verse 11, Peter says, whereas angels, now juxtaposing them, these glorious angels serving God against fallen angels and the wickedness of these false teachers, though greater in might and power than those fallen angels or mankind, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Even these angels that serve God in heaven do not cry out for vengeance. They understand the vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I I will repay. And they continue to serve And they continue to glory, and they continue to celebrate the holiness of God, His sovereignty and His truth, never deterred by looking at those blasphemers, bold and willful, calling judgment out upon them. Good lesson to those who are listening, the audience of the second epistle of Peter. These willful and bold false teachers, they, they act like irrational animals. They don't seem to have the capacity to even think, let alone think biblically. They're so self-absorbed and and so deluded that their life is a life of self-indulgence, creatures of instinct, no rational capacity, just the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's all they want. That's the sum total of life because their conscience are seared and they're living in judgment, and Peter warns, and they are here, so be careful and be on the lookout because they're acting like mere instinctual beasts born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction, as sure as those fallen angels are chained in darkness, waiting judgment. As sure as those in the flood were immediately ushered into eternal weight of of a great white throne judgment that happens in the culmination of history, as sure as those destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they will be destroyed in their destruction. There's no cheering for the good guys. There's no celebrating the demise of the bad guys. Peter is making it very clear. There's consequence of choice, particularly eternal consequence, although there is a a normal everyday consequence that he will address a little bit later on in the text. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in daytime. That's a haunting statement. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. These men with seared consciences are so evil they revel in the daytime. They're not even afraid that people see. They're not even afraid of the judgment of God. They're not even afraid of the accusation of the righteous. There is no fear fear. They're bold and and willful. There is no trembling. It is out in the open and celebrated. Again, sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? 
particularly in sensual matters and sacred things. They're blots and blemishes. What does he mean? They're diseased scabs and filthy sores, reveling in ungodliness in the bright hours of the day, reveling in their deceptions, openly flaunting and enjoying their particular form of wickedness. And then he warns, all the while feasting with you. We would like to think it's not so. But it was so when Peter wrote this epistle. And it is so today. Seems like even in broader evangelicalism, we're trying to erase the clear distinctions of the Scripture, to construct a bigger tent where more people can come. Even when revelatory truth says they cannot come in their lasciviousness and sin, it is an abomination. Even within the context of, of what he writes here, the conduct of the wicked is despised by God. They have eyes full of adultery. No moral self-control, insatiable for sin, a sin that is impossible to satisfy, so they pursue it with, with a passion. Again, Romans 1 comes to mind. Read that this afternoon. Describe some of these very same people, given over in this lifetime to their sins and the consequence of their choice, vessels fit for destruction, ultimately in their earthly demise being placed in a position of holding, waiting the great white throne judgment of God, accursed children, eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They're fishing for targets to fulfill their desires. They're corrupting the teaching of true truth. They are participants, in fact, willing participants leading the band in the uh, uh, upheaval of, of moral reality and the culture that God had created for His glory. <clears throat> Their hearts are trained in greed. They want what they want, no matter what the cost. They are accursed children. It's a term of disgust and contempt. Children are cursed. Those who are willfully in the midst of the believers at the time of Peter's writing, calling light darkness and darkness light and evil good and good evil. Peter is warning the recipients of his letter, in spite of the ungodliness of the world, there is an even more grievous enemy who was within the ranks, defying the authority of the sovereign God and teaching things they ought not to teach. Say, watch out for them. Don't be led astray. Be careful of them. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Now listen, 
They weren't deceived. They didn't lose their way, forsaking the right way as a deliberate rebellion against God and everything that He stands for, even from some who are sitting down at meals with the believers that Peter writes to in Second Peter. It reminds me of the first epistle of John in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were never a part of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Be on guard, Peter says. They've lost their way. And they followed the way of Balaam. He is talking about those who are pursuing all of this to somehow satisfy their own desire, a lascivious desire, sexual desires, their own greed. We don't have the time to spend this morning to reflect upon Numbers 22 and that whole account of Scripture. Peter introduces that they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loves gain from wrongdoing. There was, there was a payoff for doing what was wrong. It somehow satisfied greed and other such things. But even Balaam, the prophet, was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. If you were to look at that text in Numbers 22, some of you are well aware of that. The king of the Moabites, Balak, comes to this prophet of hire, and he hires the prophet to go and make a curse on the nation of Israel. For the Moabites feared the power of the Israelites as they saw a divine victory given to them to one of their enemies towards the north. As Balak, Balaam, excuse me, was traveling to Balak to be bought off, if you would, to be bribed to bring this judgment upon the nation of Israel, there's an angel of the Lord with a sword in the wayside. And everywhere that Balaam turned his donkey his donkey would not move an inch, for he saw the angel of the Lord in the way with a sword. Balaam's furious, just furious at all of this. He threatens to kill the donkey, but he was rebuked for his own sinfulness, his own mind and greedy self. He was Rebuked for his own sinfulness, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Eventually, Balaam sees this angel of the Lord wielding this sword of truth. You would think that that would have somehow corrected Balaam's behavior. Read in Numbers chapter 31 that Balaam was killed by the sword after pronouncing not condemnation but blessing upon the nation of Israel. Balak was furious. And Balaam received the consequence of choice. What you will read in the book of Numbers is Balaam resembles these false teachers of lasciviousness and ultimate freedom and do whatever you want, have your best life now. And ultimately, the nation of Israel would be judged as Balaam presses them 
to intermarry with the Moabites and to intermarry with the Midianites, the very thing that God forbade them to do, and ultimately judgment would come upon them. This was not a prophet of God. It was a prophet who profited from his prophecies. And the angel of the Lord stood against them. Again, Romans chapter 1 teaches us, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, and they're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossipers and slanders and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous degree, and those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And our tendency would be to say, go get them, God. These are living souls. These are eternal souls created in the image of God. These are souls in need of the truth and of the gospel, in need of the divine intervention of God's Holy Spirit. There should be no such reveling in God's people that they're going to get theirs. There ought to be a spirit of thankfulness that we're not going to get ours because of Jesus Christ. And that He spared us, and He sanctified us, and He's keeping us, and He's coming for us. But there are those in our midst who need to hear. And we say, well, we can't reach them. I guess that's one of the big lies today. Our job is not to reach them. Our job is to preach the gospel to every creature. It is God's job to reach them. So when we look upon the consequence of choice and the eternal judgment of of those we know and see, they have names. I pray our heart is moved that we've been rescued from that. And I pray that our heart is moved to embrace the truth of the Word of God as this light shining in a dark place with such tenacity that even those who blaspheme might hear the truth from us, save perhaps God's will that they come to know Him as Savior. There's great and grave lessons in the text, and there's always a consequence of choice. When Peter is done, in chapter 3, he says, "'You therefore, beloved,' knowing this beforehand, even this text, this difficult, challenging, heartbreaking text in chapter 2, even knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Is there glory to God? in His ultimate judgment and the consequence of choice? There is. There's a need of the church to be so committed to truth, regardless of consequence, that we speak that truth to a dead and dying world that some might be saved. It's not our job to reach them. God handles that, but He uses us in the proclamation of truth for His glory, which is an encouragement to the people to stay the course. I charge you in the name of Christ, stay the course, and the truth will set you free, and you shall be free indeed. And with a passion, we must take that truth to a lost and dying world, 
knowing that's always a consequence of choice, and God will do what's right in His own eyes. May He always find us faithful, doing right by God as we, as we live and serve in this faithless generation. The older you get, the more people in your life move from this life to the next life. And it has a tendency of bringing about the sober reality that there's an ultimate consequence of choice. We don't know a man's heart. We don't know the outcome of a man's life. But we do know what the truth is, this light shining in a dark place. May we be faithful to that truth, knowing that God will sort it all out in the end for His glory. May we be protect the flock of God that is among us by teaching that truth. And even in a time and a day of great judgment, may we know that we have a God who delivers. And soon we'll hear that sound of a trumpet and everything's going to be okay. Even in this heavy, heavy text, at least it was for me, our God is good and His will prevails. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, thank You for this time. What a difficult and challenging text. Father, I pray that we'd be reminded of the battle that we find ourselves in, that we would understand the consequence of choice, that we would be sensitive to the needs of the people around us, and even those who rightfully we stand in opposition to, may we warn them, may we tell them, May we be faithful in our charge to them. May you do what only you can do for your glory. As we weigh the ultimate condemnation, I pray that there's a sense of urgency that grows in our hearts and minds. And that we're faithful. Just find us faithful to the truth, to its proclamation for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.